Hey everybody, Todd Hunter here. Mickey and I will be back next week with our weekly rotation of new episodes featuring some exciting guests and great conversations. We appreciate all of you for tuning in and ask you to rate and review the show on the podcast platform of your choice. It helps us to cast an even wider net and spread the goodness that comes from these episodes. This week, we hope you will enjoy this previously unreleased conversation that I had right before Mickey joined as co-host. Grace and peace to you all. Hi, I'm Bishop Todd. Welcome to the C4SO podcast. Today we get a glimpse into the reality that the Bible describes as elders having wisdom. As today I introduce you to Alice Freiling, who tells me in this podcast she's 78 years old. She's an amazing woman. Today we talk about the importance of clergy having a spiritual director. She gives us some wisdom about how the Enneagram can help us in our sanctification. And we close the interview with some really charming insights from her new book from NAS Press called Aging Faithfully. Here's Alice. Alice Freiling, we were just saying off the air that um, we kind of know each other. We travel in all the same circles and have lots of great mutual friends, but this is one of our, this is our first time to actually have an extensive talk. Thanks so much for being here. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. So I got to know your husband, Bob, of course, a little bit from publishing a few books with InterVarsity Press, but you and I didn't get to talk so much. We're delighted to have you here today. I want to say, because I was thinking coming onto this podcast, how grateful I am to you for how you've stewarded your life and the things that you've you've given yourself to, what you think about and pray about and research and write about and grateful for the gifts that uh, God's given you to help shepherd leaders towards good health. And that's what I want to talk to you about today is, as you know, and everybody knows who listens to this podcast, I'm sure there's all these dreadful statistics about how pastors are just not faring well and a significant percentage of them would quit if they could. And I just can't tell you, Alice, traveling since COVID uh, restrictions lifted, I don't go anywhere without hearing a really heart-wrenching story of pastors who have lost best friends, family members, um, just over all the controversies of the last two or three years. So having you here today to help us think about soul care, is uh, it's really important. Well, I've been sitting in the pew for a number of years, so I am very, very grateful. I mean, I think a lot about what you said, and yeah. um, I'm very grateful for dozens of pastors who have enriched my life yeah. more than I could ever say. Well, why don't we begin with introducing yourself a bit to our audience, but not just with the usual data points, but um, but a bit also of how did you become not just fascinated with, but kind of passionate about and expert on the issue of soul care for Christian leaders? Um, well, Bob and I were with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for 50 years, and we sometimes ask ourselves, you know, we didn't set out early on saying, well, we're going to be in ministry for 50 years and here's what we want to accomplish. It just was year by year. And probably when I was in my 50s, I guess, um, I was introduced to the Enneagram. Mm. And that was very life-changing for me. And I have since then, I've been doing a lot of you know workshops and teaching and writing about the Enneagram. And yeah. I see how that, how helpful that is to pastors. Yeah. Um, and then right around the same time I was introduced to spiritual direction. And that's probably what I'm most passionate about. And then just recently I was working with a couple of graduate students on soul care for pastors and everything in me 
says spiritual direction is just a shoe in for soul <laughs> care for pastors. Yeah. Um, it's a place to begin, not to end. Um, so I'm pretty passionate about that, that part. I, I meet for spiritual direction. I am a spiritual director and I meet with several pastors and they, they're so, so grateful, I think, yeah. to have someone. I mean, I, I don't want to hear about their church committees. I want to hear about what's going on inside of them. Yeah. Amen. And to have someone listen yeah. seems to be very healing. Let's start there, Alice. Just last week, I was meeting with one of my colleagues to have some initial conversations about creating in our diocese, C4SO, uh, a, ro- a more robust system of clergy care. And I've been supervising clergy since my late 20s, and I'm in my late 60s now. So 40 years, I've been supervising clergy and churches. And if I've learned anything, I've learned this. You can't make clergy do something. Like, I don't think I can just make a rule that says, I command you to go see a spiritual director and, you know, you have to see them once a month or something. Because, you know, if somebody doesn't want to do it, first of all, they'll fudge. Second of all, maybe they'll go, but not really participate in it. So we can, that's not the kind of thing that we could legislate. But I wonder if you could help us today by just giving us a vision for why should the average priest, deacon, minister have a spiritual director? Why is it important? Let me start out by making a, an important disclaimer in terms of spiritual direction. In spiritual direction, it's not a relationship, as you know, where one person directs another person. As a spiritual director, I see my role as coming along beside someone and looking at their life as best I can through their eyes and anything is fodder for discussion and spiritual. Yeah. Together. I hope we can look and see this direction of God in that person's mm. life. And my impression is that, that the pulpit is a lonely place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, pastors have a huge job to do, which I respect a lot, but I don't think they have someone listening to them in this way. Yeah, there's some advantage to me as a spiritual director because I, I'm not in the church, mm-hmm. and I don't know who they're talking about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what those people think about them. Mm-hmm. And often when I, I I meet with other people besides pastors, I don't mean all pastors, but often in spiritual direction encounters, I will start out by saying, "Oh, this time is yours, and I'm happy to go with your agenda." But if you don't have an agenda today, then I will go fishing by asking questions. Mm -hmm. So I just, when I was first into this and teaching people in our congregation in Chicago, I just kept saying, this is such an amazing privilege to meet with someone, not just me, but when I would meet with my spiritual director, to meet with someone who was only interested in what I wanted to talk about that day and looking at that through my eyes and then helping me listen to the whispers of the spirit. Yeah. I mean, this doesn't happen over coffee Sunday morning between services and it doesn't happen to a pastor unless it's pretty intentional. Yeah. I've had a spiritual director for a number of years now. And for me, one of my most lovely frequent memories is like you said, that opening prayer when a director will basically invite me to let's listen to the Lord together. And like you said, spiritual directors are never bossy. They're never telling us what to do. They're helping us by creating a space, an atmosphere, a vibe 
in which we can attend more closely to the Lord. So, Alice, that being the case, in your experience, why is that attending to the Lord in that sacred space created by a spiritual director? Again, why is that important or essential to a Christian leader? I thought you were going to ask, how does it happen? And I was going to say, I don't really know. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we have to leave room for some mystery. Why why is it important? There's there's the personal reason. Whether you're a Christian leader or not, it's incredibly Mm -hmm. important to attend to our own souls. And in daily life, unless we're inclined in that direction ourselves, that's probably not going to happen. So we need to be pretty intentional about that. But I also think, and this is maybe a little more motivating for people who are in ministry, I think you will be a better minister if you attend to your own soul. Mm. Spiritual direction um, helps pastors and deacons and church leaders listen to the whispers of the Holy Spirit in themselves. And that's so healing and so transforming that that's what they want to do for other people. Yeah. And it also, spiritual direction, as I think about it, there are two things that happen. One is that it invites the person to humility, and the other is that it invites the person to self-awareness. And if I were going to say two things that I would love, that that I do love to see in my pastors, it would be humility and self-awareness. Yeah. When I first started myself in spiritual direction, um, both as a spiritual director and as a directee, I I just said to Bob one night, I just feel like I have been born again. Mm. I mean, how did I get this far without knowing about spiritual direction and how did I get along without it? Yeah. Yes, and I, I hear this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been my experience too. Um, so Alice, for the people who are listening today who haven't had a spiritual director, maybe they know a bit about it. Um, help them understand what's the difference between spiritual direction versus coaching, you know, like having an executive coach or a mentor and therapy, you know, proper therapy. How does, how spiritual direction differ and fit into that? Yeah, that's an important question. Um, I would say those three roles are all kissing cousins. So Mm -hmm. there it's a listening relationship. Spiritual direction is often long-term Um, When I was in Chicago, I had the same spiritual director for 15 years, and Mm -hmm. I've been meeting with people that long, but it's not, there's nothing codependent about it at all. Yeah. Um, Coaching, as I understand it, often happens more in a professional context. Yeah. It's a little more, um, the, the coach tries to help the person figure out where they would like to go professionally, either stay in the Mm -hmm. same position or where they would like to go in that position. Right. And therapy is usually, not always, but it's usually addressing a trauma for someone or Mm -hmm. maybe an unconscious trauma that is influencing, causing anxiety and that kind of thing. I don't know how often um, coaches would necessarily meet with someone or a spiritual therapist would, but I think Mm -hmm. they would meet more often. They're more focused on one issue. Um, I find that I can usually tell when I'm getting out of my league in terms mm, of being yeah. a spiritual director. Right. And so I have no problem. I, I, I love to invite people to look in one of these other avenues. It's also mm-hmm. different from discipleship because right. in discipleship yeah. you're, you're going through 
you know, some steps to help the person become a stronger disciple. And with spiritual direction, you're starting right where the person is. Yeah. And by next year, the person will be in another place. Mm -hmm. So you're not done. Well, maybe we could say it this way, that as you said, coaching has to do with the, the practical um, or the sort of the utilitarian part of being a leader. Uh, therapy, we might say, has to do with healing of something. But direction is this very different kind of sacred space that, again, is meant to attune, uh, to attune people to being able to hear the voice of God. And like you said, in the topics that they bring to the session that day. Is, does that sound like a fair way of saying it? One of the things that really surprised me is I started meeting with people for spiritual direction. Um, and I had, you know, been in ministry all my life. So I was very familiar with Bible studies and discipleship and a lot of other forms. Of yeah. Growth. People would say to me, in fact, I'm, I'm meeting with a woman now who just kind of, she stumbled into spiritual direction and she didn't even know what it was. And she is just sort of blown away about how mm. different this is for her. And yeah. she'll say, like when you said to me, and she'll tell me what I said to her, using this happens again and again, using words that I wouldn't even use. Mm. But somehow in our conversation, I think she heard the word of the Lord specifically yeah. in scripture yeah. or the whispers of the spirit. And yeah. it wouldn't have happened if we hadn't been meeting. But yeah. it didn't happen because... I came in with this profound wisdom that everybody in the world needs to know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it happened because we were in an environment where she could listen to the spirit. So you've brought up a couple of things that I want to follow up with real quick, and then we'll, we'll move on to your work with the Enneagram. As I said, lots of Christian ministers these days are, are feeling traumatized, not just in the pop use of that term, but in many cases, actually traumatized by the way they've been treated by people. And of course, we all know that um, that trauma is now you know, too often going the other way as well. But when trauma is an aspect of what somebody's bringing uh, with them into your room when you're doing direction, is there something specific we should know if somebody's dealing with trauma, how and, and maybe how not direction doesn't work well with that? I don't think that spiritual direction ex excludes trauma by mm. any means. And that's another um, sort of gentle joy in my experience. There are times when people will bring up something and I just think, oh, my goodness, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> Help me. My sense is that as people ex even begin to explore trauma in themselves, that it's a good place to begin. Okay. Um because it, spiritual direction is full of grace. It's safe. Um, when I'm talking with someone who is very different from me, I don't have a sense of, oh, I need to change their minds. Yeah. My sense is that, wow, they've experienced life in a very different way. And I mm. want to hear more about that. Yeah. So occasionally um, someone just talking about the trauma Mm -hmm. is a spiritual direction moment and they move on. But as I mentioned before, I do feel very free to say, let me give you some suggestions of some counselors around here. You could right. see, or, you know, if they're yeah. not in my area to yes. look for a counselor. And so trained spiritual directors know how to refer people oh, I think so. to therapy. Yeah. yeah. That's been my experience as well. So I just wanted people who are dealing with trauma to, to know how those things could fit together. So just a couple of quick things before we change directions. 
how would you uh, advise somebody to go about finding a compatible director? And how often should you meet with a spiritual director? Well, that's a bittersweet gift of the pandemic, that spiritual directors are probably more accessible now than they have ever been mm-hmm. um, because of you know doing so much on Zoom and by phone. Best way to find a spiritual director is to look for someone who has a spiritual director and find out what that's been like for them. And perhaps mm-hmm. they would even recommend their own spiritual director. Mm-hmm. I think you can Google um, spiritual direction training centers. Often there are people going through spiritual direction training who are looking for people. And so it's a good mm. on-ramp for you yeah. um, and that you might find someone that way. I've been surprised since, um, you know, I wrote a recent book on aging. And so there's been a little bit of activity about that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm getting a lot of emails through my website. I'm not taking new people for spiritual direction, but people email me and ask me. So I'm thinking, well, that's what someone could do too. If you have an author that you've really connected with, go to their website and mm-hmm. see if they're available for, if they are spiritual directors, see if they're yeah. available. Um, and there are networks of spiritual directors that you can find online, right? And some of them are regionalized, like Greater Chicago or Greater LA or something. Is that right? Right. My, I, I did the program with Christos. Um, mm-hmm in Minneapolis. And, you know, that would be a a source. One more common source, I think, would be Renovari. People could go to Mm renovari.org and they certainly would be able to direct them to spiritual directors. Yeah. Especially pastors, I think. Well, let's switch gears to the Enneagram. I'll go first just by saying my daughter sort of got, quote, into the Enneagram a few years ago and would, you know, frequently, you know, want to talk about it and banter about it. And I would always jokingly say, no way. I don't want to be reduced to a number. <laughs> I'm more than a number. You know, my, my humanity cannot be reduced, you know, to a number on a wheel. Um, but I'm aware of after hundreds of conversations and seeing all kinds of stuff that the Enneagram uh, is useful for people. So how do you, how have you uh, witnessed leaders interacting helpfully, fruitfully, maturely with quote their number? Well, I am getting a little bit more and more old fashioned about all of this because the Enneagram has gotten way too popular (laughs) and people are prone to say, oh, well, I understand you're just number one. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so offensive. Let me just say that my understanding of the thesis of the Enneagram, because I think that has a lot to do with how pastors would respond, that Mm -hmm. the thesis of the Enneagram is that we all have been given gifts. I mean, this the Enneagram isn't always from a spiritual or Christian standpoint, but it, right. I will always refer to it that way. So the thesis is that we have been given gifts, um, and when we are under stress, we overplay our gifts in order to feel better about ourselves. That really doesn't work. And the Enneagram also suggests a, a grace particularly designed for your particular gift and your mm-hmm. particular exaggeration. And so as we embrace the gift, by God's grace, we really are transformed. So from the very beginning, I think the Enneagram could help the pastor or the leader understand what's going on in a committee. I mean, let alone in his or her own life. But in a committee, if you have, we'll say a number Number two person is the helper person, and you're trying to look at the a future program in the church. That number two person is going to be all about, you know, well, what can we do to really help these people mm-hmm. who have this need and that need? Right. And then you have somebody else who 
maybe as a number seven and they say, well, the best thing the church can offer is, you know, a lot of programs to have learning experiences and fun experiences. Mm -hmm. And if those people start going at each other, at the very least, the pastor can understand what's happening. Yeah. Um, I've often heard that the Enneagram well used uh, offers two really important things. Not this is not all it offers, but at least two important things it offers is is a kind of self-compassion. Like you said, that there's issues of gift, temperament, personality, history, uh, context, all that, that would might go into a certain number. But as you said, there's always corresponding weaknesses. So the Enneagram can help us with self-compassion, which sounds really important to me as a longtime minister, but also allow compassion on others. Like not just understanding the people around the table, but actually having compassion for where they're coming from. Do you think there's something to that, that the Enneagram can fund passion, uh, compassion? Yeah. And actually, as you say that, I think I'd like to answer in the context of marriage, which is relevant mm-hmm. to pastors, but yeah. mm-hmm. I, because I have not been specifically a pastor, been in ministry. A couple of days ago, Bob and I royally hurt each other in a conversation and you know, and it happens in every marriage, but it's it's always the most painful right now when it yeah. happens. Yeah. And so as we talked, where where we ended up, Bob, I'm a number four on the Enneagram, and Bob is a number five, and there's some similarities, but there are a lot of differences. Mm-hmm. And where we ended up was I had this sense that deep inside each one of us there was a place that only God could heal. I mean, we've been married over 50 years. Yeah. We've been working on this. <laughs> we haven't been successful. So this deep place inside of us where only God could heal. My sense was, because of the Enneagram, I think I was able to put words on that mm. spot, which in itself was very healing. Yeah. That there was a place in Bob's, deep in his soul, his default position was to react with anger. Mm-hmm. And there's a place deep inside me, which I know because of my Enneagram number, where I take everything personally. Mm. So you can imagine where this went. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is starting to sound like a, a not so funny sitcom. Yes, right. And you only laugh because you think, well, everybody knows that. But yeah. the Enneagram tells us about our blind spots. And yeah. so not everybody, we don't know our blind spots. And even identifying that, it was a moment of com- mutual compassion because I can, I can say, well, of course I'm taking things seriously. I do this all the time. Yeah. And Bob could say, of course I get angry. I do that all the time, but we didn't want to do that to each other. Mm. But it sounds like you're actually talking about a compassion that grew out of revelation. Yes. Out of understanding that was rooted in Enneagram. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's and- really cool. I've been working with the Enneagram now for 30 or 35 years. And I often go back to it during a day. You know, I'll just say, you know, oh, to myself, you're just acting like a number four. Just get on and get a life, you know, whatever. (laughs) So so your Enneagram uh, becomes a part of your own self-talk and your own self-coaching, so to speak. And it so much helps me with other people. We all want everybody to be just like us. And heaven forbid if that happens. So Alice, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've understood that the Enneagram number is not static. Like if you took it at 16, you might be slightly different or even somewhat different at 66 than you were at 16. So that these things aren't static necessarily. There can be a little dynamic to them. 
Um, if that's true, how does a leader kind of monitor that in their life? In their own lives, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a great question, and I may not be answering it the way you want me to answer it. <laughs> I think sometimes people don't know themselves very well, and so mm-hmm. you know they think their Enneagram space changed. Um, I'm not a great fan of um, the Enneagram tests for finding your space. I would rather mm-hmm. have someone, you know, if they're engaged in this way, read a book and, you know, sort of struggle. It can take a long time to figure out your Enneagram space. Yeah. You have yeah. to be very self-aware and I think very humble mm-hmm. to get that out of a test. But even if someone was pretty sure at 16 that they were such and such, and then at 66, they weren't so sure It could be because of growing self-awareness. But there's Mm. another thing about the Enneagram that I think confuses people, but it's part of its richness. I do think we, if we have been, if we're accurate and we have found our space, I think we will probably stay in that space for the rest of our lives. Mm. But the Enneagram talks about four other spaces that influence us a lot. They're the wings, which are Mm -hmm. the spaces on each side of our space. And then there are the arrow spaces where our arrows point to and from mm-hmm. our space. And those four spaces are places we go under stress, places we go mm. when we're doing well. Um, we don't become that space, but they can inform us. I see. And Bob was a little irritated when I got into this because he said, well, so in other words, five of the nine spaces are your space, but that's not what the yeah. Enneagram is right. saying. Yeah. Uh, so there are years years of my life when I really acted a lot like a number three, which is one of my wings. But mm. I'm not a number three, and it helps me to know that's probably not the place that would be most life-giving for me to get stuck there. Yeah. And likewise, I could do that with the other, the, all four of the additional spaces yeah. from the number four. Okay, so what I hear you saying is uh, maybe there's some debate about how static or fluid uh, your number is, but what I hear you saying is that what contribute what could contribute to the sense of fluidity or feeling a little different is that it could be a wing issue or an arrow issue, not merely just your sort of mm-hmm. core number. And I think it has something to do with season of life too. I mean, as I yeah. look at my own life, I struggled with a lot of depression as a young person. Mm-hmm. And that would be, you know, have both feet stuck in the cement of being a number four. <laughs> I mean, yeah. not all people who are just are depressed are number fours. But then as I experienced some healing, I was a young mom. Mm-hmm. So it was very easy for me to fall into the pattern of a number three. I got a lot mm-hmm. of things done. I was very yeah. successful. I provided leadership in our church. And then our children left home and I had a little more time. So what did I do? I started moving into the influence of the number five. I started mm. reading books. Yeah. And eventually I became a little more compulsive about that. And I thought if I can just find the right book, I will live happily ever after. Yes. Yeah. So that would be a number five compulsion. <laughs> right. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm rejoice. I'm 78 and I am really enjoying being a number four. Well, you are remarkable for 78, and I want to get next to your new book, Aging Faithfully. But just before we go there, Alice, give us a couple of sentences that would maybe give a pastor listening to us a vision for how the Enneagram could assist in their sanctification. You know, sometimes we think of Enneagram in these sort of pop terms, and sanctification seems like a big, heavy theological term. But I feel like the Enneagram could help in somebody's sanctification. But you say a bit about that, if you agree with me. 
Well, I, oh, I do. I mean, I think it's a tool for transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the fascination I have with it, that I see people, I see spiritual formation happening in people's lives as they grow in their own self-awareness. So I'll pick on the number eight person who is the okay. leader and pastors mm-hmm. are often leaders. They're not always eights by any means, but let's, you know, pick, I'll make up a person mm-hmm. and he or she is a number eight and a leader and proud of his leader or she, whatever, happy about being a leader and leaders make our world go round. But the Enneagram helps catch us in the act when we start being compulsive. So for the pastor who is a wonderful leader, if he or she starts to notice that people are kind of pushing back a little bit and they aren't always doing what he wants them to do. Mm-hmm. And people say about the number eight, it's my way or the highway. Yeah. And so, you know, that's not a compliment. The Enneagram doesn't give <laughs> out compliments. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think if the pastor starts noticing this, it's an awakening. It's saying, oh, I think I'm doing it. I, and you, I mean, maybe just say, I think I'm doing that thing the Enneagram says I do. You know? And so then you just pull back and you hold it more loosely. Yeah. And that is so transformative. Yeah. I mean, I take everything personally. But now I know, I mean, I've known it for a long time. Yeah. But so when Bob is irritated with me and I take it personally, I think, oh, I don't think this is a good thing to do. I think I'm being reactive. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, and I need to move to the, the grace of the Enneagram for my space is equanimity, mm. which is feeling what needs to be felt without getting stuck there. Well, um, in our last few minutes here, Alice, uh, first I want to say I want to be you when I'm 78. Um, <laughs> And second of all, let's let's talk a bit about your book, Aging Faithfully, which recently came out from Nav Press. Um, the subtitle, if I remember right, is A Holy Invitation to Growing Older. And then when I was looking around in your book, you say the most counterintuitive things like life-giving ways to grow old. How can that possibly be? How can growing old be life-giving? Or you talk about letting go uh, to receive something new or to see aging as a, an opportunity to grow, those things seem so counterintuitive. And I'm sure it's why you wrote the book, but say a bit about what you were, what gave rise to the book, what you were learning and how you came to these counterintuitive notions that actually uh, growing older can be a grace and a gift. I started, I, I decided to write the book because in my young sixties, I realized I was asking a lot of questions and I went to the library, my default place. Yes. And I couldn't find a book that spoke to my questions. I found wonderful memoirs, a lot mm. of great practical financial advice. But I, I wanted to know what's going to happen inside my soul. Yeah. Um, so I actually told my daughter, who's an editor, I said, I can't believe I'm thinking about writing a book for a dying audience. <laughs> but it turned out that's really not true, that the older demographic is it may be the second fastest or largest growing demographic in our country. It's, mm. it's way up there. Yeah. And since I've written the book, I've probably never been so astounded by something that I wrote. There has been mm. so much eagerness about it from people my age and in their fifties, sixties and seventies. Yeah. Um, and one other thing, since we're sort of at the end, I'll put in my little tip for pastors on this because yeah. um Another thing I've noticed is that so many people are looking to their churches for support in aging, and they're not Mm. necessarily finding it. So I think a younger pastor could 
offer so much to older people. And I, you know, this is not a sales pitch for my book, but I particularly wanted to write a book that was small and that would be discussable. Yeah. And so for someone who's a younger pastor wanting to reach out to people in their congregation, there are books out there um, more and more now. So um, mine isn't the only one, but yeah, it's a, it's a very vital group that needs help. Yeah, I I hear you saying something uh, really interesting, Alice. You probably know this um, from your years at InterVarsity, that there's there's a lot of pressure on pastors for churches to be young and kind of the one of the worst things you could be, you know, is an, an old gray-haired, you know, sort of mm-hmm. dying, you know, small church. And I, I say that just as like an icon. But I hear you saying that especially with the aging of baby boomers, who were this enormous number of people, that there's a real ministry opportunity to help people learn to age faithfully. I would say it's the most life-giving season of my life. Mm. And I am just amazed. And a lot of it does have to do with um, letting go some of the things that I thought I would never let go of, um, both in terms of activity and in the ways I think. Um, Writing the book was, for me, it was like, meeting with a spiritual director, I would write something and it was like the Holy Spirit would say back to me, wait a minute, you don't really mean that. Let's Mm. figure out what you do mean. So God wouldn't let us get older if there weren't a purpose for this season. Right. And so far it's, I mean, lots of days are bad days, but the good days are deeper than I ever thought they could be. I want to give you a chance to give us a couple anecdotes so that readers or our listeners can understand what you're writing. Give us an example of something you yourself have have experienced of letting go of something that maybe was a little scary, but you apprehended something new. Oh, I love that question, and I'll do it as quickly as I can. (laughs) Bob and I have aged differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, the greatest loss has been in energy, and Mm -hmm. I just don't have the energy that I I've never been a high energy person, but I don't have, I'm very disappointed. I run out of energy way before I run out of day. And for Bob, it's a loss of opportunity when he retired Mm -hmm. and the colleague relationships. Um, There was one day when I I just sat down, I'd already written the book and I sat down and I mean, even the other day I just said, I can't give up anything more. I don't like this anymore. I'm done. Mm -hmm. And I happened to think of Jesus first beatitude um i think the translation in luke and maybe it was from the message it said you're blessed when you've lost it all yeah the kingdom of god is there for the finding yeah and i just thought wow (laughs) this is this is good news and so i started looking at the kingdom of god i thought what is this like what am i finding and i thought of jesus parable the the sower went out to sow and he, he, he tossed out all the seeds and then he went home and he went to bed and he forgot about it. Yeah. And then the harvest came and he didn't know where it came from. And that was God's invitation to me that day. You know what? Just go to bed and forget about this and I will bring fruit into your life. And this is good news. It's really yeah. good news and it's an invitation. Yeah. Well, at C4SO, we're blessed to have a lot of young and uh, young leaders and, you know, thirties and forties, but we do have leaders that are, uh, in their fifties uh, and sixties. Um, if you're one of those, or you just have old people in your life and congregation that you care about, 
uh, I do recommend Aging Faithfully, where we do have these amazing ideas of life-giving ways to grow old and letting go to receive something new and seeing uh, each loss that comes with aging as an opportunity to grow. So at 66, I'm tracking with you. I'm coming <laughs> behind you and I'm tracking with you and, and uh, trying to figure out what this all means. Alice, thanks so much again, like I said, for devoting your life to these ideas. Thanks for being with us today. And I, I hope that we've um, just nudged uh, the listeners who don't have a spiritual director to find one and for people to maybe engage a bit more with the Enneagram. So thank you. Thanks. And thank you for your ministry. It's wonderful. 